My name is Harrison Wheeler, and this is Technically Speaking. This show is recorded live in San Francisco and produced in collaboration with Dave Clark at Studio Pod Media. Our show coordinator is Deanna Marinci with additional editing and music presented by Notalab. This episode of Technically Speaking is sponsored by Automatic, the people behind WordPress.com, Jetpack, WooCommerce, Tumblr, and more. Automatic's 1,400 people hail from 79 countries and speak 99 languages. Their open source software products democratize publishing and commerce so that anyone with a story can tell it and anyone with a product can sell it, regardless of income, gender, politics, language, or country. More than 1 billion people use Automatic products every month. Automatic also contributes directly to WordPress, the open source project that powers over 40% of websites on the internet. If you're ambitious, energetic, and driven by a passion to help people, you can make a visible, profound, and lasting difference working at Automatic. Visit automatic.com to check out the latest job listings today. That's A-U-T-O-M-A-T-T-I-C.com. Hey, everybody. My name is Harrison Wheeler, and my guest on the show today is Preston So, author of Voice Content and Usability and Senior Director of Product Strategy at Oracle. Welcome to the show. Hey, Harrison. Thanks so much for having me on today. How you doing? I'm doing good, man. I'm moving right ahead with the next season recording. And actually, next week, which will be in the past for listeners once they listen to this episode, I'm hosting the live broadcast of Technically Speaking during SF Design Week. So I'm extremely excited. Ton of amazing designers, entrepreneurs, doers, thinkers from around the world are joining. So I, I can't wait to share that. You know, I'm going to have to look for the recording. That sounds really fun. Yeah, yeah. It'll be on all the streaming platforms once everything is done. Outside of that, man, I'd love to know, maybe give the listeners a little bit of background about yourself and who you are before we dive into the, the show. Sure. So my name is Preston So. I use he, him pronouns. And in addition to this book that I've got coming out in June called Voice Content and Usability, I've been working in the web design, web development, web content area for, gosh, about 20 years now, which is a really long time to be in this industry, I find. And I started out as a web and print designer, doing a lot of brochures, doing trifolds, doing a lot of work in InDesign before shifting over to doing websites full-time. And one of the things that really came about in the early days was this whole new idea of content management systems, which back in the early 2000s was really new. People didn't really know what it was. And this is now the canonical or authoritative way that a lot of people, especially marketing organizations and editorial groups, manage content, copy, media for their websites. So I got really involved in content management on all different sides of content strategy when it comes to the web and web development as well. I worked primarily in the Drupal ecosystem, and I actually wrote the first ever comprehensive book on headless Drupal architectures, which is a really fancy way of saying content management for things that are beyond the web. So mm. mobile, augmented reality, virtual reality, all of these really exciting, nifty new things. 
I've also got another book coming out this fall called Gatsby, The Definitive Guide, which is the first book on Gatsby JS coming from O'Reilly. So I kind of weave in and out of the coding and the design fronts, so to speak. But I've been on all sides. You know, I've been on the platform side. I've been on the agency side. I've been on the customer side, working on the Entertainment Weekly website, which was one of the major websites back then. And nowadays, a lot of my focus has been on content management where I work at Oracle, focused around this whole notion of, hey, you know, the pandemic has really accelerated a lot of the adoption of some of these new technologies, especially things like chatbots and voice and virtual reality. And how do people, especially designers, content strategists, user experience folks, accessibility folks, transition over from a world that's really been primarily about the web into this new world of voice and this new world of immersive and all of these new realms that are coming out. So this new book that I've got that's going to be coming out from a book apart later this month, Voice Content and Usability, is exactly about how to take all of the content, all of the information that we have trapped on the web, which a lot of content strategists struggle with all the time already, into a format that's more appropriate for voice and how designers and usability specialists and accessibility specialists can really take advantage of this new paradigm. Yeah. So speaking of new paradigm, it seems like from what you're telling me is like the web and just content in general is going through a transition, right? So what are some of the biggest opportunities that you're seeing as far as the work that you're doing? As you mentioned, like I can reflect back. I remember the first One of my proudest moments was actually going from creating a static website and moving it into a CMS. And I think that was like WordPress back then. And it was mostly sort of like only blogs for the most part, right? If you wanted to build a full-fledged website, that was actually kind of extending the boundaries of the platform itself. So what do you say are some of the biggest transitional points now? Because I think back then it was like building a large website at scale. So if we're moving into these different sort of industries, what are are some opportunities that you're seeing? Totally. It's a really interesting question. And, you know, I remember that moment too, Harrison, you know, when you put in your website and your CSS and everything into a CMS, and then you upload it and look at the website for the first time. And it's like, wow, everything just kind of works. It's like there's templates, there's all these cool things, there's links to other content, there's related content showing up. You can have all of this stuff set up automatically. So we're not pushing around HTML files (laughs) anymore, which was like the biggest revolution in quite some time. But one of the really interesting things is that that's in some ways been actually a bit of a disadvantage. And I write on this subject a lot for CMS Wire about this whole notion of the fact that over the past few decades, and this is not in any way an indictment of how far we've come, we've come to a very impressive point when it comes to web development and how content is managed on the web, but we've become really biased toward the web. And a really good example of that is when you look at WordPress, for example, when you look at Drupal or some of these other content management systems that are out there, fundamentally, they're still rooted in this idea of web pages, page-based architectures for web design, and links, and calls to action, and buttons with rounded corners, and subscribe to newsletter forms, and all of these things that are real fixtures of the web. You know, it's like you can't really imagine a website not having any of these things. Yeah. But when you move into some of these other realms, like especially spoken content and spatial content, 
all of those things kind of go out the window, right? You kind of throw them out and you throw them over the edge of, of the browser uh, viewport, so to speak, because there is no browser viewport. There is no visual underpinnings that you have when you are working with a voice interface like Alexa, which has no ability to color some text blue and put an underline on it, or something yeah. like you know a VR headset like an Oculus, where instead of linking and clicking on a link to go to a different page, you might actually be like moving and positioning yourself a few feet over to go to a new, you know, to a new piece of content. So one of the things that's really interesting about the ways in which content is shifting nowadays, and I just wrote about this a little bit in a list of part as well for an article called Immersive Content Strategy, about how a lot of these assumptions and core elements of the web that we've gotten so used to, like links and buttons and all of these things, are really difficult to move over to a voice setting or to an immersive setting. So a lot of the questions I answer in my book, Voice Content Usability, are about what are some of the things that you have to think about when you can't link, when you navigate by negotiating instead of clicking on a nav bar or looking at breadcrumbs and where you might be listening through content instead of leafing through it or scrolling through it in order to get to the next best thing you want to look at. So for a lot of people, I think it's a really big change because a lot of us, we come from this background where it's like, okay, web, and then there was mobile, and then there was responsive. But all those things were still kind of webby, right? Like there were still links and buttons and UI elements that we all were used to. But now with voice, it's like, okay, what does affordance mean in voice interfaces, right? What does navigation and wayfinding mean when your content becomes spatial, when your content becomes aural? It opens up this really exciting new world of possibilities, in my opinion. Yeah. Yeah. You know, what's really fascinating about this discussion, it's if you look back at the web, right, we've moved into this world where humans are interfacing with computers and computers have been optimizing, right? The web has been optimized. You can remember in the early web, it was all about expression and what you could do and look at this really cool stuff. But there were limitations in terms of graphic computing and internet speeds, et cetera. So then you move into the sort of like this mobile experience where more people have access, but then it becomes more of an optimization on how people can work with that device. I think what's really fascinating about this is that voice has always been around. Humans have communicated since forever. And now we're in a point where technology is catching up to be able to facilitate that, right? So I almost kind of want to ask you, like, if we kind of look back at just general communication, like, why now? Why is like voice tech sort of top of mind? Wow, that's a lot to unpack there. And I'll answer in two ways. First and foremost, one of the really interesting things about the ways in which voice interfaces have sprung up is that when you think about it, the ways that we use our keyboards and mice and game controllers and all of these screens that dry out our eyes and make us get glasses like the ones I have on are really actually artificial. They're made up. They're not things that are rooted in actual primordial human behavior. And what I mean by that is, Ever since we started out with technology in this digital age, we've had to learn and acquire skills that are fundamentally rooted in like moving a mouse, typing really quickly on a keyboard, scrolling through a web page, being able to understand that a link when it's underlined or blue is something that you can click on, buttons, the same thing. But conversation is really different. 
And conversation is something that is really unusual because the author of conversational design, Erica Hall, calls it the most human interface. It's the oldest interface in a sense, because ever since language began, which was hundreds of thousands of years ago, you know, even before, let's say, humans developed certain cultural ideas, we have been able to speak to each other and let each other know about certain things that are happening, share information, talk about what we can do for each other. So nowadays, especially in the last few decades, what we've seen is that a lot of the artificial intelligence, natural language processing, speech synthesis, speech recognition, a lot of these new areas of technology, thanks to a lot of power in computation and computer scientists nowadays really engaging with some of these more unpredictable, human, natural, organic aspects of how we interact, they've become powerful and robust enough to where we can actually have a relatively compelling conversation with Alexa or a relatively compelling conversation with Google Home. Now, I say relatively because it's obviously not as compelling as the conversation you and I are having right now, Harrison. But the other big reason is that, and I think it's more recent, right? There's a certain intrigue, I think, that's come about with voice technology. And a lot of it comes from folks who are immersed in accessibility and enabling new access to content for folks who are disabled. And a lot of this comes about from the fact that because of the fact that the web has been fundamentally rooted in these visual paradigms, these visual foundations, these visual fixtures of how we interact with pages online, the screen reader is also something that's very rooted in visual elements. And so when you navigate using Chromevox or using JAWS through a website, what you're actually having to do is sift through all of these things that were visually situated and placed in there. And there's an accessibility expert and voice interface designer named Chris Mari who has written about this problem and has said, you know, as a blind person, I've never really understood why screen readers work the way that they do. They don't work for natural conversation. And his argument is that for people who are blind or low vision, actually having the ability to interact with content in a more organic way that isn't so recitational, isn't so mechanical, and isn't so, let's say, obstacle-ridden, because you got to pass through the skip to main content link, you got to skip through all the announcements of certain elements on the page. And now with voice interfaces, you unlock this really interesting new paradigm. And when we built the first voice interface for residents of the state of Georgia, Ask Georgia Gov, which is one of the first content-driven Alexa interfaces in existence, that was one of the key concerns was, how do we help some of the residents in Georgia who might not have a computer at home? who might not actually have access even to a computer, but they might have an Alexa sitting on their coffee table and might feel a heck of a lot more comfortable talking with somebody, even if they're not an actual person, but having a bit more of an authentic conversation than something like a screen reader might be able to provide or something like a very hard-to-use computer might be able to facilitate. Yeah. The future of work is here at Automatic. The people behind WordPress.com, Jetpack, WooCommerce, Tumblr, and more. Join a team of diverse global perspectives. Create the work environment and schedule that empowers you to perform at your very best. At Automatic, what matters is the work you produce, not how many hours you put in. Work from anywhere you choose. There are automatications working right now in 79 countries around the globe. 
The intellectual and cultural diversity that results is critical to the company's success. Automatic believes in constant learning and offers mentorship and personal coaching to support your growth. As a small company with a huge footprint, Automatic offers you the chance to have an impact and make a difference. If you're ambitious, energetic, and driven by a passion to help people, you can make a visible, profound, and lasting difference working at Automatic. Visit automatic.com to check the latest job listings. That's A-U-T-O-M-A-T-T-I-C.com. So look, I, I want to understand, at least from that government perspective, what are the types of opportunities that voice interfaces are unlocking for folks that may not have had the attention in the past? Do you see this potentially being sort of a accessibility and usability being sort of like a leading progress in terms of adopting that technology? It's a great question. And I think it's, you know, one of the ways to answer that is if you look at recent history, obviously here in the United States, as well as abroad as well, one of the things that we've been seeing is that state and local governments, the public sector has really been strapped for cash in a lot of senses where we're losing a lot of people who can answer phones and answer questions for residents. We're losing a lot of the ability to provide various forms of information for all of these different people. And so what's really interesting about Georgia, and I think a lot of other state governments, is that they're at the very forefront of accessibility. They're at the very forefront of user experience because not only do they have to think about all of the users who are interacting with them on websites, they also have to think about people who are elderly or disabled or have certain needs of access that differ very much from the visual elements that we have on the web. Georgia in particular has been really amazing in this regard because they've, from the very beginning, they've been very focused on accessibility. And of course, this voice interface that we built for them was just the first in a series of projects that they're working on. They actually have a chatbot out right now as well that facilitates conversation to get information that you need. And this is really important when it comes to certain public sector organizations that have lost, let's say, the ability to answer phone calls within a short time frame, or they might have closed down certain agency offices in counties that have lower budgets or in locations where they've simply had budget reductions. And also, one of the interesting things about this is that it's brought up this really interesting dilemma where a lot of times... Back in the early days of voice interfaces, a lot of people, especially organizations in the corporate world, started building these parallel content repositories or parallel databases to serve information to these chatbots and voice interfaces. And what that did was that actually resulted in siloing of this content where you would have here's some content for your text bot or for your Facebook Messenger bot. But over here, you've got content that's for your website. And now that they've gotten out of sync, how do you actually maintain those two things? So what was interesting is when I worked on the team that built this first ever voice interface for Georgia, which is the main case study that's the undercurrent of all of voice content usability in my book, they came to us and they said, look, the very first thing is that we have a very strict requirement, which is that we need to manage all of this content in a single place. We only have one editorial team and we cannot manage two separate versions of content for web and voice. It has to be part of the same CMS, part of the same environment, part of the same repository, and they have to pull from the same place. And that generates a lot of interesting challenges when it comes to content strategy, content design, 
and long-term maintenance and so many of these things that a lot of organizations now are beginning to grapple with in a really meaningful way. I love that story because this is kind of where your experience with content management, along with the voice, also just the case study in general or the challenge in general really comes together. I really love that. I love it. I love how this is a great example of just going into an industry or going into a field and really seeing it evolve, right? And I think it's important too, to be able to adjust to that. So here's my next question. So you've seen all of these changes, right? Like what is probably one of the biggest challenges for you and sort of how do you really kind of adjust in such a dynamic world? Because it feels that actually, and this is just technology in general, the more opportunities that tend to open up, the more ideas, the more demand and people want it right away. But we also don't want to move too fast in the direction where it's harmful. And so really, how do you balance that? Ooh, there's a lot to talk about there too. You know, obviously futurists are really excited about the prospect of voice interfaces taking over a lot of the ways in which we interact with brands and organizations. But I think one of the things that really worries me and is a really big challenge, I think that we all as an industry and especially marginalized communities face is if you look at some of these situations that have come up with Facebook and Google around disinformation and some of the ways in which we see automated racism, automated misogyny, algorithmic oppression surface in a lot of these environments, I'm very worried. And I actually devote an entire chapter to this issue in my book. I'm very worried about how the intrinsic biases and the systems of oppression in our society will manifest in voice interfaces. And there's two examples of this that are really tough to grapple with. There's a moment that's going to happen or that futurists believe will happen sometime in the future that Mark Curtis calls the conversational singularity. And it's this moment, you know, we've all probably heard about the technology singularity, but the conversational singularity is that moment in time where hypothetically, we'll be able to have a conversation with a voice interface that is fundamentally indistinguishable from the kind of conversation you and I are having right now. And it's the kind of moment where we won't be able to tell, which is both very exciting and also very terrifying. We won't be able to tell whether the person we're having a conversation with is human or not. And it's part of this journey towards AI-driven futures and all of that sort of thing. But one of the things that I find missing in a lot of this discourse about the conversational singularity is the consequences that could be unintended that surface from that sort of really exciting potential because of the ways in which our social systems work today. And one example of this is, take, for example, the conversations that we have on a daily basis. I live here in New York City. A lot of the conversations that I have with people are with people who are people of color, people who don't speak English as a first language, people who perform code switching between queer and straight modes of speech, or that code switch between, you know, let's say Spanish and English, they speak bilingually. And one of the things I've noticed about the proliferation of a lot of these voice interfaces and voice assistants is if you think about Alexa, if you think about Siri, and if you close your eyes, who's the person that you picture when you're looking at talking with someone like Alexa, Cortana, Siri, some of these voice assistants. And broadly speaking, of course, it's not the same for everybody, but broadly speaking, the image, the personified picture of that person that we're speaking with is generally a white cisgender 
woman who is potentially from middle America and has this certain mode of speech, this certain approach to speaking that we associate with secretarial women. And this really raises, I think, a lot of issues around some of the institutionalized misogyny we see today in the tech space and the fact that when we personify and characterize these voice assistants as secretarial women, what does that do not only in terms of our perceptions of these voice assistants, but also the perceptions of the systems of oppression that affect people of color, women, and other marginalized folks in the society? So one of the very big concerns I have is a lot of the things that we have in our society today that are more human and really reflective of the diversity we have are not found in voice assistants. There aren't voice assistants that very clearly will speak AAVE, for example, or voice assistants that will very clearly have, let's say, a queer form of speech. And this is a really big problem. Because as we centralize a lot of this technology and as these behemoths, right, these very large companies like Google and Facebook and Amazon continue to take over these spaces, one of my big worries is not only about the misinformation and the potential for people to take a lot of these sources that are not vetted as gospel, just like we see in social media, but also the notion that the more authoritative voices, so to speak, in the very real sense of voice assistant voices as well, are going to be people that reflect the most privilege in our society, that reflect the ones who are most well-off in our society, and don't actually reflect the real richness of the people that they're trying to serve. And I think this really becomes a problem when it comes to especially serving marginalized communities and oppressed communities. How do you serve them when the voice that's speaking to them is someone that is not reflective of their own values or their own community or their own background. It's a question that doesn't have very good answers. It's a question that is a big challenge, I think, that'll come in the next few years. And of course, that's the reason I devote a whole chapter to it in my book. Yeah, this is really mind-blowing. And, and, and I think there's a lot to think about understanding like linguistics, like slang, different vernaculars? When does it become cultural appropriation? I mean, there's so much there. Preston, I'm really curious. I mean, it seems like a lot of the voice assistants are very commercial driven. I think a lot of the examples that you've really kind of walked us through are for the benefit of society, which I, I think that is what technology should be doing. What does it look like right now? Is, is there like a large group of folks that are really devoted to this? Is it pretty young? And then how can people really start to sink their teeth in to get a better understanding and potentially start applying this to the work that they're doing? Sure. And I realize we went way big picture as well with this conversation. You know, one of the things I'll say is that there is a lot of improvement that's coming about. One of the things that I'm really glad to see is certain services are emerging, like Amazon Polly is a really good example of this, where they have certain voices that you can choose from that represent a very diverse set of backgrounds. Of course, nowadays, you can also configure the voices of your voice assistants, like Alexa can speak in different dialects or different voices. But one of the things that I think still remains is the fact that there is still this disconnect between the way that we write English and the way that we speak English. And this is borne out through all of the interactions that we have with people on a daily basis. And one of the things I'm really worried about is that 
a lot of people today will use these really awesome platforms that are out there. And this is one of the pieces of advice I have for folks who are looking to get into voice interface design and conversation design. There's a lot of really great platforms out there that are emerging. Dialogflow, which is now owned by Google, is one of them, as well as Bot Society and some of these other really big names that have been surfacing that are doing really great work to allow people to build in an omni-channel or a platform agnostic way. So you can build once and design once and facilitate you know, a single chatbot that will manifest as an Alexa skill, Google Home skill or Google Home Assistant, chatbot, text bot, SMS bot, phone hotline bot, whatever you can think of. But that still kind of washes away a lot of the distinctions between written and spoken English. And for some of us, the differences between how we speak at work and how we speak with our friends couldn't be further from each other. So that's one area of development that I really want to see a lot more attention paid to. And I think there are quite a few people who are working on that problem. But in terms of people who are trying to get involved with voice interface design and conversation design, one of the things I'll recommend is that in my book, I talk about this in a very technology agnostic way. And I do this on purpose because the vast majority of voice interface literature that's out there, of conversational interface literature that's out there, is very technical, is very hardware-driven or software-driven. It assumes that you're using a certain platform or a certain set of technologies. And this is one of the first books that really takes a different approach and says, this book is for designers. This book is for content strategists. This book is for content designers. This book is for the UX people that might not necessarily have access or really the desire, quite frankly, to get their hands dirty with code or things that might be really limiting in terms of how far you can take some of these conversational interfaces. So my book covers everything that you need to know from starting out with your content. And this is a really crucial thing, right? A lot of voice interfaces are predominantly transactional, which means that they can help you check your credit card balance. They can help you order a pizza. They can help you reserve a hotel room, but they're not going to be able to tell you about those things, right? They're not going to be able to tell you about, let's say, Cruella the movie or Hamilton the musical or some of these topics that people want to talk about. So it really starts out from this notion of, well, hey, you've got a lot of content, and you might have some other transactional stuff like forums and stuff. We'll set that aside. But you've got a lot of content and information that you want to outlay to your customers. How do you do that? How do you audit your content? How do you plan your content? How do you manage your content so it makes sense for a voice interface? And then it talks about situating all of that content within dialogues that are written, that sound like they're spoken, as well as how to actually put those into user journeys and flows. And one of the really interesting things about journeys in voice interface design is that they're much more linear, they're much more unidirectional, they're much less networked and hub and spoke driven than website journeys are. So it's a very different paradigm. And then I go into things like how to launch your voice content, how to actually deploy it, how to think about usability testing, how to think about all of these sorts of things that come about, all couched in, of course, the work that we did for the state of Georgia. My biggest advice for those who are just getting started with this kind of stuff and who see this as a very this kind of like impenetrable world is, well, first of all, get my book, obviously. I'm <laughs> going to say I'm going to definitely plug that. But it's a new world. You know, it's a very new paradigm. It's not like other realms of user experience. And everyone's figuring it out as they go along as well. And so one of the things I really encourage is, hey, try building something that is 
really gimmicky or really simple for your friends and family, something that might be fun to try out and see what comes out. And obviously, I think a lot of us who are web designers will really benefit in terms of our careers as well from a lot of the advantages now that voice interface design will confer on our backgrounds. Impression. I, I feel that that advice that you gave people, it was also the advice that someone gave you when you first started out on the web. <laughs> Absolutely. Paying it forward is so important. And thinking back to when I started on the web, I was very lucky and very privileged in a sense to be in that world way before Firebug or DevTools on Chrome existed, where it was very much this situation where it was table-based layouts, CSS didn't really work in a lot of browsers. You know, there was a lot of, there were a lot of issues back then. And voice is very much the same way. There's a lot of fragmentation. There's a lot of issues. There's a lot of bumps in the road. But yeah, you know, I think one of the biggest things that I want to do with this book and all of the information I'm sharing, especially the blog post I just wrote yesterday, actually, about some of the differences between spoken and written content that you should be aware of, is really to help people who you know, need to find that voice of their own in this world. It's not just about giving your content or giving your website or giving your brand a voice of its own and letting it speak for itself. It's really about using voice interfaces and voice technology to enable those of us who have not had the amplification, have not had the uplifting moments in our career to be able to take that on their own as well. Actually, this is the last sentence of my book. So, you know, I really dedicate this book to everyone who still hasn't been able to find that voice of their own in the discourse, in technology, in the voice world, because of the ways in which there's a lot of barriers and biases that prevent that from happening. But same advice holds up, I think, for folks who are getting into web design, folks who are getting into graphic design, folks who are getting into design systems, for example. Same exact sort of advice, which is get involved, but don't be afraid to share what you think. <laughs> yeah. Well, Preston, super excited for the book. And maybe summarize again when the book is going to be released, how people can get it, and also how might they catch some of the amazing writing that you have as well. Oh my gosh. So I write in so many different places. I write probably a little too much for my own good at this point. But the book comes out on June 22nd officially, and it's available right now for pre-order at abookapart.com. You can access a preview of the book at my website, preston.so slash books slash voice dash content. But I believe a list apart will also be publishing an excerpt from the book there's going to be a whole lot more content coming out from the book as well. I'm an editor for A List Apart, and I do a lot of writing for A List Apart, so you can find some of my insights on voice interface design, voice content, and immersive content there, as well as some of my writing on different places like CMS Wire and Smashing Magazine. But I also do a lot of writing on my own blog, Preston.so, where you can find information that is geared toward a whole lot of different people, people who are starting out with voice, people who are immersed in voice already, also those who are technologists and developers looking to get their hands dirty. But June 22nd is going to be the launch date of my book at abookapart.com. And I'm really looking forward to having more conversations, as it were, <laughs> about some of these uh, exciting things that voice can do for us. Awesome. Hey. I've got another question that's been burning in my head the whole time. How did you get in the writing? You know, you're working on CMS, but you're also doing a lot of writing as well. And I'm sure you use the CMS as well. How did you really develop that muscle and how do you maintain it? 
It's a great question. And this is not something I really say to a lot of people, but there's actually a big gap in my blog, which is when the pandemic happened and <laughs> when all the lockdown started. Writing is difficult. Writing isn't something that comes, I think, very easily to a lot of people. It certainly didn't come very easily to me when I started out. My first blog was in 2005 and I shut it down in 2007. But I've started writing ever since then, starting in really 2015 or so. For me, a lot of the things that I try to do are, hey, if I learned something or if I found something interesting, let me figure out a way to share that with the people in my audience who might benefit from it, the people who are just starting out who might benefit from it, the people who might really need to hear something that they might not have heard before. It's one of those things that I developed over a very long period of time. And it's something, it really is a muscle, you know, as you said, Harrison, you know, really is a muscle that you have to exercise and, and kind of work on. I set a goal for myself to write at least a blog post or two every week. And one thing I always recommend, and, and, and this is something I've heard from some of the writers that I look up to the most, is it's not really about writing well or writing well initially or writing about something that's really esoteric or advanced at the beginning. It's really about writing about what you care about and getting started on writing and talking about things that are stuff that you know. It could be as simple as something you cooked that you've gotten really good at cooking. It could be something that is a matter of some design advice you got as you were getting started. And But I think one of the big advantages that I have is that I really dedicate a lot of time to writing and I focus a lot of my time on writing on a daily basis at the expense of some of the other writing that I want to do, quite frankly. But yeah. Well, hey, I think that's some sound advice. It's really just getting it out there and not, you know, not necessarily worrying about if people read it or like it or share it, right? I think there's been in the similar vein of like this optimization of the web, don't put something on the web if it doesn't create value, but it doesn't need to be that way. Exactly. And I think creating value is a very capitalist mindset anyways. You know, it's a very dangerous mindset because yeah. ultimately, you know, life is short. We're all here to ultimately do what we love and what benefits others. That's why my biggest advice in that regard is, hey, it's going to have value for somebody somewhere. Yeah. And that value is not necessarily going to be something that pays your paycheck, but it is going to be something that someone out there somewhere in the world is going to appreciate massively. Yeah. Well, those are great words to close on, Preston. Thank you so much for being on the show. Excited about the book. And I hope you're holding up well now that everything is starting to open up. I know New York is starting to get that energy back. So, you know, you're going to see Preston out in the streets, standing on cars <laughs> with his new book. <laughs> well, I don't, I, don't, I don't know about standing on cars, but, uh, you know, based on the illegal fireworks that have been going on in my neighborhood and all the people partying, I mean, I'm not going to speak too soon. So maybe you will actually see me doing that. <laughs> awesome. Well, well, thank you so much. You have a good one. All right. Hey, thanks so much, Harrison. Take care. Well, that's a wrap for this episode. Thanks for listening. Ratings and reviews help this podcast tremendously. If you're enjoying what you're listening to, I'd love it if you could leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. I'll return the favor by giving you a shout out on the show and on Instagram. Bill and PGH says, thoughtful interviews that don't dodge the details and are conducted in a natural and cheerful style. I appreciate those five stars, Bill, but most importantly, your support. Thank you so much. I'm looking forward to sharing more reviews on upcoming episodes, so don't forget to submit yours today.